Our scripture reading today is from Luke 18, 18 through 23. This can be found on page 877 in your pew Bible. If you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take the one in front of you. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us this morning, whether this is your very first time or this is home for you. We're so glad that you're here. And during January uh, at Christ Community, we always like to highlight two things. January is Sanctity of Life Month. And so there's kind of two um, things we like to highlight in January as part of Sanctity of Life Month. One is um, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday and a pastoral prayer for that. And then next Sunday, we're going to focus particularly on the unborn uh, as we approach the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision on January 22nd. So um, this morning as we uh, begin, uh, before we look at our sermon text this morning, I just want to offer a prayer as we engage this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. So let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, this is a prayer of gratitude And we praise you this week as we remember Dr. King and those who worked with him. We praise you for the qualities that shaped him and their lives, for a strong sense of justice that regarded all people as bearing your image and having dignity in your eyes, for an unshakable belief in love and peace that would not permit them to turn to violence in order to achieve their dreams, for a commitment to sacrifice that led them forward without regard for their own safety and ultimate trust in you, God. That you would never abandon those who stand for truth and righteousness. Father, this is also a prayer of repentance. Please help us to see the continuing effects of past generation sins. Help me to see the ways which I have contributed to these things, even in our current moment. Forgive at times my willful blindness to the plight of my brothers and sisters. Forgive times when I was silent when I should have spoken up. For times when I am complicit in injustice because of refusing to ask a question or to push back. Christ Jesus, this is also a prayer of self-examination. Search me and know my heart. See if there is any false way in me. Do I think more highly of myself than I ought because of my heritage? Do I identify with my race or culture or my people more than I identified with your unified church across our country and across the world? Lord, continue to renew my mind. Help us to be ambassadors for your truth in all humility and grace and love. And Holy Spirit, this is a prayer of petition, of supplication. We pray that Generations do not pass on patterns 
of racial partiality, segregation, or hatred. Instead, we pray that generations of your sons and daughters would work hard to break these cycles. May we do so, Lord, by acknowledging the sins of the past and leading future generations in righteousness. Lord, give us wisdom to move forward in justice, peace, love, respect, seeing every person as a bearer of your image. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. Well, over the Christmas holiday at break time, uh, my wife Rachel and I, we had a chance to uh, finish watching season four of The Crown. So I don't know if, if any of you are watching The Crown. If you're not familiar with the show, it follows the, the life of Queen Elizabeth from um, really from her coronation in her 20s all the way, I think the show is going to kind of catch up to our contemporary moment. I think there's like six seasons planned of the show. Well, in season four, one of the main storylines that unfolds in the show is the relationship between uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana and them coming together and sort of from the outside seeing this fairy tale of a marriage, this, this young, beautiful woman who marries the prince and enters the royal family and just the excitement of the British people for this this uh, new uh, relationship in the, in the royal family and really how it captivated the attention of the world. And the writers and the actors do such an incredible job in the show of showing this kind of this display of the two realities in which they inhabit. The one, kind of this external reality where everything seems amazing, the beauty, the, the cheering crowds, the, the seeming fairy tale of it all. But then on the inside, just the absolute misery that Charles and Diana experience, the hopelessness, the despair that leads to infidelity, the, the inner workings of the family dynamics, the pressure that's on them as a couple. And, and it just got me thinking as I, as I watched the show, sort of if, if, they, can't, if they can't have the good life, if modern-day royalty, with all of sort of their material needs met, sort of the fairy tale that we would all dream of, sort of a kingdom to call your own, an adoring public, all that, if, if, if Charles and Diane, if they can't have the good life, is there any hope for the rest of us to have the good life? When as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke here in the new year, we've been in this series we're calling Rediscovering the Kingdom. And one of the questions that we're asking throughout this series is what is the gospel that Jesus preached? And and in particular, how do we find the good life in Jesus' kingdom? What does that look like? What does his kingdom look like? And how do we find the good life in the midst of that? And the kingdom of God is a, is a concept that I think maybe if you've been around church, you've heard a lot of, but it's one of those, those, those phrases of what does it actually mean in the scriptures? And we could spend a whole bunch of time unpacking just this idea of the kingdom of God. But what's a simple working definition that you might kind of hold in your mind of what the kingdom of God is? It's simply this, that the kingdom of God is where God, where what God wants gets done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants gets done. And you sort of even see this in the language of the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. And earlier in, in Luke, we see them teaching those disciples how to pray. And what do we pray? Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. And then we ask, may your kingdom come, 
your will, your desires, what you want done, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we're asking, Lord, would, would, what you, would your kingdom come? Would what you want done get done in, in our lives, in our city, in our church, in our country, in our world? So this is the question we're asking. What is, the, what is the good life like? What is it, we're looking at these passages in Luke and saying, what is it like when Jesus brings the kingdom? When, when, he's, when his will starts to be done, what happens around him? And, and what does that give us insight into our own lives? And so this morning as we look at Luke 18 and the passage that Lisa read for us a moment ago, we want to really ask three questions about entering the good life in Jesus' kingdom. And the first question is, is this, what gets in the way? So first of all, what gets in the way? Then second, we want to ask, sort of, what do we want? What gets in the way? What do we want? And then lastly, we're going to ask the question of, who are we reaching for? Who are we reaching for? Okay, so first, what gets in the way? As we're pursuing the good life in Jesus' kingdom, what gets in the way? Now, before we even dive into the text this morning of Luke 18 and start looking at the story in more detail, I just want to acknowledge right off the bat that when you hear a text read, like we just heard read, that, that Lisa read for us, about wealth and rich people and money, I think it can make a lot of us uncomfortable. Because pastors and money can be complicated, and maybe when you read that and you thought, oh my goodness, I, I just, I wonder what is, you maybe think, I'm just, I'm, what is this guy's motives? What is he going to say about money, about wealth? What agenda does he have? Or, or maybe it's just kind of uncomfortable. It's like, okay, wealth, money, church, are they going to ask me to give a bunch of money today? Is, is that where this is going? And look, I, I get all of that because throughout not only the years, but the centuries in the church, there's often been uh, abuses of power and money in the, in the church. And so if that's where you're at this morning, I, I'm really, I, I'm with you. I, I get that. And just please know it's in our heart at Christ Community. But we can't miss out on these texts from Jesus because Jesus seems to think that how we relate to money and wealth are a big part of how we find or don't find the good life in his kingdom. So I just want to do a little bit of that ground clean so we can hear Jesus this morning as we go into this. Okay, so now let's, let's set the scene in Luke 18. If you haven't turned in your Bible already, I encourage you to um, grab one of the pew Bibles or turn on your, your phone and, and navigate to Luke 18. Again, the Bible is divided up into two big pieces. So you've got the Old Testament and then the New Testament. New Testament's in the second half of your Bible, and Luke is the fourth book. So it goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke then navigate there in the numbers to, to 18. And last week, we watched Jesus as he was gathered with this group of children. Parents are bringing their kids. Uh, Jesus has stopped somewhere resting. These, these kids are being brought to him, and he's touching them. He's blessing them. And the disciples are kind of annoyed about it because there's apparently there's this other crowd of people kind of wanting to talk to Jesus, it, it seems, from the, the context here. And he's spending all these times with these, these kids, and the, the disciples, they start to rebuke them and say, you know, Take Jesus have time for these kids right now. And he says, no, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you've got to become like one of these. And this is the very next scene that we find here is, is this, this moment in, that we just heard read, this rich ruler. And so it's almost like you can imagine Jesus is still there and he's maybe he still has a kid sitting on his knee or some parents gather around, some kids playing near his feet and the crowd has been waiting to talk to Jesus and you can almost imagine it kind of parts as this sort of influential ruler steps forward to ask a question of Jesus. 
And this is what we find then in verse 18 of Luke chapter 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now, that is jarring to us as contemporary readers, and it was also jarring to the rich ruler 2,000 years ago, but for different reasons. So first, why is that statement of Jesus jarring to us as contemporary readers? Well, because if you've been around the Christian tradition for any length of time, in fact, we confessed those words in the Nicene Creed to the heart of, of kind of the, the core summary of what Christians believe. It's that Jesus is truly fully God and truly and fully human. Is Jesus denying here in this statement that he is actually God? I mean, that's jarring for us as readers. It gets us hung up. Wait a second, isn't Jesus, isn't Jesus God? Is he denying that here by his response to the rich ruler? And I want to answer the question in this way and say no, and we could look at other places in the New Testament that would, would fill that out. But even right here in this episode with Jesus and this rich ruler, you see a key insight that says that's not what Jesus is saying. Because in a moment, Jesus is going to ask this rich ruler to give up everything, sell all he has, and follow him. Now, if Jesus were sort of wanting to demure, to, to, to kind of push the attention away from him and say, no, I'm not, I'm not God. You would have imagined his response to the ruler being something like, sell all you have and go and follow Israel's true God as I follow him. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, follow me. Give up everything and give your allegiance to me. So it's clear that Jesus is saying, I am the way into the kingdom. I am Israel's God come in human form. So he's not denying that. But what is happening here? And this leads us to why it's jarring for a second reason for the ruler. What, why is this jarring to him? And this is where we have to, we have to kind of step into uh, Middle Eastern culture for a moment in this time to understand what's going on. Because in that kind of honor and shame cultural context, one compliment was sort of given in exchange for another. So if you were to give a nice compliment and an introduction to someone, you are expecting that they are going to come back with, with an equal or sort of greater compliment back to you. And the compliment that Jesus receives of good teacher from this ruler is almost an over-the-top kind of compliment. Because you look in the rabbinic literature around this time, and, and almost no one, there's like two people who ever called like a good teacher a good rabbi. This is not a common term. It's almost to the point of, of over-the-top flattery. And this guy then is expecting that Jesus Jesus will come back with a, with a like sort of a, a very generous compliment to him. But not only does Jesus not come back with an over-the-top compliment to this guy, he doesn't even, you know, we, we know this guy is a ruler. That's his, his title. Jesus doesn't even come back with his title. He just keeps on talking to him without giving him a compliment, without addressing him by his title. Now, we live in a cultural context that tends to be much more informal with things like titles and position and sort of even kind of downplay those things. So it's, almost, it's hard for us to stand, understand how offensive it would have been to this ruler that Jesus doesn't even come back with his title. But then look here at verse 21. Jesus gives him these commandments. Well, excuse me, just for a moment. 
So Jesus then lists these Ten Commandments, right? That's Jesus' response to him. What must I do to inherit life? Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to give you, a few. he lists out a few of the Ten Commandments. And what we can't miss here is that the order that Jesus gives the Ten Commandments in, and he doesn't list all of them, but it's not the same order that they occur in, if you were to go to Exodus 20, which is the first place we have the Ten Commandments listed, it's not the same order. And I think Jesus is doing something really intentional here by the way he orders it. The first one he says is do not commit adultery. He lists a few other ones. And then the last one that he lists is honor your father and mother. Now, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother are both about loyalty to family, right? Do not commit adultery. It's about loyalty to your spouse, preserving the family in that way, honoring your father or mother. It's this, this broader familial context that, that family is key, important, and Jesus gets where this guy is coming from. He recognized, I think, his ordering and his placement of those commandments is really intentional. And the guy, he says, verse 21, he says, all these I have done. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. I've kept them all from my youth, which is a pretty bold statement. And different people, you know, take that in different ways. How, how bold is this guy really being? But he's putting himself, say, I, I have kept all the commandments. Now, again, the kind of the, the rabbinic literature of this time says really only three people ever kept all the commandments. They list Abraham, Moses, and Aaron. And this is some pretty heavy hitters, big time in the, the Jewish faith, Right? Be like, I, I don't play basketball. Be like, you're going down to the Y and you're, you're playing basketball and you tell your friends, you know, I, I play ball like Michael Jordan or LeBron James. And you're sort of putting the elites, the very top. This is what Jesus says to them. I look down at verse 23, 22, excuse me. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want us to miss here that what Jesus is asking of this guy is not just about the money. I mean, we get that, right? It's like, okay, Jesus is asking him to sell all he has, give it to the poor. But there's something bigger going on here in this cultural context. Because this guy's wealth is connected to his family, right? This is his, the inheritance that he received, the lands, the, the, the dollars, the, the status, the honor that went along with this estate, the whole of what it was is about his family. Remember, Jesus highlights, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. He knows this guy has, as, as everyone did in that culture, a really high degree of loyalty, much higher than it's probably even possible for us to really grasp in our cultural context, to family. And so when he asks this guy, to give up all that he has. He's not just saying, empty your bank account. He's saying, give up your status. Give up the, the honor that you have had. Give up the, the right that you have over this inheritance that you've been entrusted with, that you are to pass on to future generations. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you need to put your loyalty to me as higher than your loyalty to your family and the wealth that you've been given by them. And the guy can't do it. You can't do it. 
he's holding on to something too tightly. So what gets in the way of the good life in the kingdom? Well, simply put, holding on to something other than Jesus too tightly. Giving our our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate allegiance to someone other than Jesus. Which leads us to a question to reflect on in this moment, which is, what am I holding too tightly? What am I holding too tightly? Now, as you heard Jesus' words to this rich young ruler, I imagine you probably are wondering a little bit in your own mind somewhere, is like, is, is Jesus asking this of me to sell all that I have? Is that what it takes to follow Jesus, to sell all that I have and give to the poor? Is that the requirement? And my, my first reaction to that question is, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know what God is calling you to do. <laughs> so I don't want to tell you that's what he's not asking of you. But I will say, also, this is not the normal thing that Jesus asks of people in the Gospels. This is pretty unique. And doesn't, in other scenes in the Gospels, he's calling people to himself, make that kind of uh, request of them. But before we breathe too deep a sigh of relief, it is clear, right, that Jesus says in verse 24, it is really hard for people who have wealth to enter my kingdom. So, so we don't get off the hook there. He might not ask every one of us to do exactly what he's asking of this ruler, but he still says, if you have wealth, it's going to be hard for you to enter my kingdom. Why is that? Why is that? Well, recently I, I've been reading a book, which I'm absolutely loving. It's by uh, a German luthier. Now, I had no idea what a luthier was until I started reading this book. Maybe you don't either. Maybe some, some music nuts out there know. A luthier is someone who makes violins. There's a craftsman who makes violins. The book's called The, the Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. This German author, German luthier, Martin Slesky, he walks you through just kind of these devotional thoughts, kind of reflecting on the craft of, of violin making and drawing metaphors from that. And at one point, he specifically addresses this issue of, of wealth and money. And take a look at this, this quote I've got on the screen here. Because in the beginning, or in, in the Gospel of Luke, we find not only Jesus' blessings, but also his warnings. This is earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Woe to you who are rich. And the woe is not a decree of judgment, but a cry of pain, a holy sorrow, for the rich have satisfied themselves, this is key, have satisfied themselves in a way that hinders them from searching with their whole hearts. Satisfied themselves with something else. Because here's the deal. If you, you know, at the end of the month are able to, to fill the fridge with groceries each week and pay all your bills and have a little bit left over for Netflix account and family vacation, it's really easy to get comfortable in your own kingdom. I think here's what Jesus is getting at with this. That the more lavish, the more comfortable, the more extravagant your kingdom is, the harder it is to enter his. 
just saying it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual reality. The more lavish, the more extravagant, the more comfortable your kingdom is, the harder it is to enter his. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this section in the message. I think you think he gets it right on. So, so listen to this. This was the last thing the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and was not about to let them go. Friends, disordered love and divided loyalty will always lead us to despair. Disordered loves, divided loyalties will always lead us to despair. What are you holding on to tightly? That maybe you need to open up your hands and let go of? In order to follow Jesus well. Do do you even know what those things might be? Which actually leads us to our next question. Because if we're going to answer that question of what are we holding on to tightly, we need to know what is it that we really want? What do we want? And this is a question that Jesus is going to ask someone else in this next scene, someone who's in a very, very different position than the rich ruler. And this is, now we're moving on in the next scene. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to go there. He's been there before, but this is his last trip to Jerusalem. He is going to die there. He knows he's going to die there. He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross in Jerusalem when he arrives. And he's actually warned his disciples about this now for the third time in, in between this episode with the rich ruler and what we're going to look at next. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's headed to Jerusalem, he has to pass through the city of Jericho on his way there. Now, again, at this point, this is, ending, this is the, you know, the, kind of the climax of Jesus' ministry, his three years of, of healing and teaching and going around and, and being this, this leadership prophet in Galilee. And now he's coming to Jericho, and he's well known at this point. There's a throng of people around him as he's walking toward the city. And, and outside the city of Jericho, there is a blind man who is begging. A blind man begging by the side of the road. And he starts to hear the commotion of, of the crowd with Jesus kind of coming up the way. And of course, he's, he's blind. He can't see. He doesn't know what's happening. He asks, what's, what's going on? What's, what's this noise? What's the commotion? What's happening? And someone says, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. This guy thinks, this is my one shot. This, this is the moment that I've been waiting for. I mean, surely he's heard the stories, right? That, that this guy can heal, that Jesus can heal. Maybe he's heard the promise that Jesus stood up in a synagogue. We, we saw this back in Luke chapter 4 and proclaimed that he was coming to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captives. And what else does Isaiah say that Jesus is saying is be fulfilled in your presence? Recovering sight to the blind. It's like, that's me. I'm the blind. I'm the poor. Jesus is coming with good news for me. So he starts to cry out, verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the crowd is annoyed with this guy. He says, be quiet. He says, shut up. Stop making all this racket. But, but he knows this is his one shot. He doesn't, he's not going to get another opportunity with Jesus like this. 
And so them kind of trying to shut him down only makes him cry out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, crowd telling him to shut up, and then all of a sudden everything stops. Jesus stops. Verse 41. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him. Jesus asked him. And again, you can imagine the scene, right? There's this huge crowd of people following Jesus. There's a lot of noise. Then, you know, Jesus kind of hears this voice above the rest of the crowd. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he stops dead in his tracks. You can almost imagine people kind of tripping over themselves as as Jesus stops kind of the, the, the procession. And he says, Bring that person to me. Again, he's blind. He needs someone to, to lead him. And so someone goes into the crowd and takes this guy by the hand and leads him to Jesus. And then verse 41, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Friends, that question that Jesus asked him, the same question he's asking you, he's asking me, what do you want? What do you want? And this guy, he doesn't miss a beat. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Do you see the contrast here between the rich ruler and the blind beggar. One comes to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The other comes saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. One turns away from Jesus sad. The other turns to Jesus and follows him rejoicing. So it got me to wondering, what, what's, what's the difference? Why do they have such different responses to Jesus? Well, I think the, the heart of it is this. That one approaches Jesus as a good teacher, looking for advice on how he can complete his own self-salvation project. The other one approaches Jesus as a great savior, knowing he has nothing to offer, just needing mercy. Friends, there is a world of difference between having Jesus just as a good teacher and looking to him as a great savior. All the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. So ask yourself, what do I want Jesus to do for me? What do I want Jesus to do for me? Because friends, we are desiring creatures. 
We're desiring creatures. We like to think of ourselves as, as primarily being driven by kind of rational complex in our mind and our thoughts. And, but here's the, and, and reason is it's so important. It is so important. But at the end of the day, what drives who we become, what drives the decisions that we make is so often at the core of what we love, what we desire, what we want. It's why we can know. It's why just knowing what is right doesn't mean that we lead lives that are right. How many times we know what the right thing is to do, but we, we don't actually follow through? It's because we want something else more. We are desiring loving creatures at our core. And so if what we want most of all is comfort or financial security or control or power, then those desires, those loves, those longings will, will dramatically, profoundly shape our lives and the, and the shape that they take. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls us and says, look, all those things that you strive after, all those things that you, you are, have so much anxiety about, our needs of food and drink and how are we going to control our lives and what's going to happen tomorrow, he says, seek first my kingdom and all the rest of that stuff will be taken care of. It will be added to you. When we rightly order our loves and our loyalties, everything else falls into line. But it all comes down to who are we reaching for first? Who are we seeking? Who are we reaching out to? Which leads us to our final question this morning, and that is, who are we reaching for? Who are we reaching for? Are you reaching to Jesus? He is reaching for you. Are you reaching to him? And, and when you reach out to him, are you reaching out to him for, for advice, for, for a little self-help, for affirmation of, of kind of an I'm okay, you're okay, affirmation of who you already are, where you're already at, or are you coming to him like the blind beggar saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I am hopeless without you. And here's the thing. If you come to him looking for help, looking for rescue, not, not for advice, not for affirmation, but in your deepest need. When you come to Jesus like that, he will stop everything to meet you in that place. He will stop everything to meet you in that place and to, and to serve you and care for you in that place. And what happens when that unfolds in your life? When you start to experience that kind of healing, that kind of rescue, the kind of the love and the joy that comes as a result of that, you can't help but want to be with Jesus. And this guy's like, he's following Jesus. This guy just changed my life. When that happens for us, you want to be with him because here is the bottom line, that the good life in the kingdom is only found in relationship with Jesus. You can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have the, the kingdom without a relationship with Jesus. You've got to have him. But when your life is transformed by him, you just you find yourself desiring that, longing that, wanting that. So what do you want? Let me just give you a few moments, a few seconds to reflect on that question. Like deeply ask yourself, and, and if you're like me, I'm going to need more than six or seven seconds, but just pause in this moment. What do you want out of life, out of next week? What do you want? Because the heart of our problem as human beings 
is that we want, we desire, we long for something or someone more than Jesus and his kingdom. And it is killing us. It's killing you, it's killing me. And you know, it doesn't just stop with us, but it actually is harming everyone around us. Because when we get our loves out of order, when our loyalty is to something other than Jesus, it inevitably creates a turning inward on self. And selfishness always wrecks the lives of people around us, not only sort of in the immediate, like, people you see every day at work or in your home, but the effects of of a life of, of, of kind of curved in, turned in on yourself. Selfishness has ripple effects out into your neighborhood, your city, your community. That's what's at stake in this. But the good news is that, that Jesus, he was enthroned on a cross. That, that he took all of, our, all of our clutching and our clinging and, and our, our things that we hold on to tightly, all of that, that tight-fisted closeness and, and all of the sadness and the despair and the, and the depression that comes as a result of all of that. He, he took all of that on the cross so that we could have our eyes open to the kingdom and have our loves reordered. So friends, open your hands and ask Jesus to open your eyes to see him. Have you come to the end of yourself? So look, I I have tried, I've read the advice books, I've read the self-help books. What I've tried, I cannot, there is things in my life I cannot get over, I cannot deal with on my own. Ask to see Jesus. Because if we don't, if we don't, we're going to end up like the rich ruler. We, We might have a lot of stuff but we're going to walk away extremely sad. I don't know if you ever played the game, and maybe some of you, you guys, we have kids in the service, and maybe you guys, you ever play the game with your friends, the would you rather game? Would you rather? When we come to the end of this text, there's a clear would you rather for us. Would you rather be a blind beggar with Jesus or a rich ruler without him. It's, it's that simple today. Would you rather be a blind beggar with Jesus or a rich ruler without him? And I don't know what your week was like. I don't know what your life has been like, what you brought into the room today with you when you came. I don't know if you followed Jesus since you could remember. I don't know if you've walked away from him. I don't know if you've Someone asked you to come with them today and I don't even know what this church thing is about. But Jesus is reaching for you. Will you reach for him? Will you trust him? Give your loyalty and allegiance to him? Maybe for the first time or maybe again afresh. I know I needed that this week as I looked in these texts and searched my own heart that afresh Jesus, I need to give my allegiance, my loyalty to you. What do you want? Well, if you're comfortable this morning, I invite you just to pray this prayer with me as we close. It's going to be on the screen. Let's say these words together. Jesus, I want to see you. I want to be healed. 
Jesus, we want to see you. We want to be healed. Jesus, we seek you first. Amen. Let me continue in prayer for us. Father in heaven, thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross, that he gave up all so that we could be set free from the things that we cling to so tightly that just lead us to death. I pray that for each one of us, um, you would help us to, to loosen, I pray for myself, Lord, to loosen our hands, to open our hands to the things that we hold on to tightly whether it's an area of sin or even a good thing that we've turned into an ultimate thing, into an idol that is keeping us from you. Would you open our eyes to see Jesus? It's in his name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to live the life that he lived and is empowering us to live a life of following him and glorifying you. Amen.